You're listening to Engage Arizona, public policy for daily life. In this episode, we speak with Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice, a national nonprofit organization focused on empowering parents to choose the best learning environment for their children. Jason takes on the biggest criticisms from opponents, including accountability and funding. And now, here's Cindy Dahlgren. All right, I'm Cindy Dahlgren with Engage Arizona and Center for Arizona Policy. We're talking school choice today with Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice, which is a very helpful website, by the way, for those searching for answers on various school choice programs. Thanks for joining us today, Jason. We hope to clear up some confusion, answer some questions on details that have been widely misrepresented in the mainstream media. Jason, appreciate your time. Probably the biggest complaint we hear about either expanding the empowerment scholarship accounts or other school choice programs is that they take money away from public schools. Briefly explain, if you would, how ESAs are funded. Um, Most of the money follows the students for the most part. Is that true? That's right. First, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate you and the work that your organization does uh, to expand educational opportunity here in Arizona. I live in Phoenix, although I work for a national organization that uh, works to advance educational choice uh, across the country. Uh, and with the ESA program, uh, which is a, a form of what's called an education savings account program, uh, this is this is different, I should note, from uh, the 529 plans or Coverdell college saving plans. In Arizona, they're called uh, empowerment scholarship accounts. What they actually do is they take 90% of the state portion of per-pupil funding uh, and put it into an account. Now, just to be clear, uh, students and district schools are, are funded via three places. Uh, their local school district, right, so local property taxes and whatnot, uh, from the state government and from the federal government. The federal government only spends, on average, nationally about 8% uh, of that per-pupil expenditure comes from the feds. Most are coming uh, from the state or from the locality. So here we're only talking about that that state portion. Uh, So 90% of those funds will follow the child into a private restricted-use bank account that families can use for certain educational expenses. So uh, private school tuition, but also things like tutoring, textbooks, homeschool curricula, online learning, uh, educational therapy, especially since about two-thirds of the students participating in the program are students with special needs. Educational therapy is a very large expense. But they're only tapping into that 90% of the state portion. All of the local funding, when a child leaves a school district uh, for any reason whatsoever, All of the local funding stays, the federal funding stays, uh, and the only thing that changes is the per-pupil allocation from the state government. Okay, so it would seem like if they're getting 90% of just the state portion, what is that, about $500, $600 roughly? Uh, so it's a, it comes out to about five thousand. I'm, I'm sorry, thousand. Yeah. Yes, of course. Yes, and that's for that's for a typical child, uh, and and a little bit more, uh, you know, closer to six thousand for a, a low income child, uh, and then students with special needs. It varies depending on which special need they have. So Arizona actually has one of the better funding formulas when it comes to special needs, in that the state picks up most of the special needs tab. Uh, so. 
uh, I don't know off the top of my head all of the different amounts, so I'll make up some. But you know, just so you have an idea, you know, a student with autism might be getting eighteen thousand. A student with blindness might be getting twenty thousand. Whereas a student that has, uh, you know, a a, a less um, expensive disability might be getting twelve thousand. But whatever the amount is, it's still ninety percent of what the state would have been spending at the district school. So it does. Um, it does vary considerably for students with special needs. And then for students that uh, don't have an IEP, uh, that don't have special needs, then it would be about 55 to 5,900. Okay. And so, but then the local money and the federal money stays in that district. So if somebody right. is, in, if a child is in a public school and then they choose an ESA and, and go to say a private school or homeschooling or something like that, then the district is left with some money anyway that they have no child attached to. So That's right. And it's just like any other operation, we should recognize that there are fixed costs and there are variable costs. So, you know, that we think of buildings, let's say, as a fixed cost, but there are a whole bunch of students, there are a whole bunch of variable, variable costs that are associated with a student in that school. You know, when it comes to things like transportation, uh, even to some extent teachers, uh, the uh, food that they provide, all of these things are uh, variable costs. Uh, and Really, in the long run, even um, there are no uh, all fixed costs or variable costs in the long run, because if there were long run trends in one direction or another, you can acquire new buildings or you can sell off unused buildings. Uh, so uh, all different types of schools and other organizations are constantly making adjustments based on uh, changes in enrollment or, you know, for a business changes in uh purchases from customers, uh, these things are, are necessary and part of, there's an important part of the market is the ability to, uh, to adapt to changing circumstances. Correct. So uh, talk a little bit about what the, uh, what the benefits would be to a public school when uh, one of the students moves from a public school to a uh, private school environment or uses one of the school choice programs to do so. I think the most important way to think of these things is that we really have to be thinking about uh, the children first and the system second, right? It's the, the system is designed for the child, not the other way around. Uh, so I sometimes hear people make the argument, oh, you know, when, when this child leaves, they're taking money away from the school. Well, that money was allocated for the child, and the child is not owed to the school system. Right? It's sort of inverting our priorities. We should really be focused on what is best for this particular child. How can we get this child into the environment that is best suited to meet his or her needs uh, and not the other way around? And so a system that had uh, more child-centric funding, what some people call backpack funding, where the money follows the child, really benefits the children. And we actually see that as Arizona has moved to a more child-centric system of funding, in other words, has moved to a system of greater school choice, we have actually seen dramatic improvements in our performance on the national uh, NAEP exams. That's the uh, National Assessment of Educational Progress, which is often referred to uh, as uh, the nation's report card. So right now, uh, at least in Maricopa County, where about you know more than 80% of the population in Arizona lives, uh, 
we have seen that uh, so right now more than 50% of students are in a school that is outside of their assigned school. And they're, so that means they're either in a charter school that they, were, that they chose or a magnet school, uh, or they're using um, uh, the inter-district uh, choice program. They're, they're enrolling in a district school that they're not assigned to somewhere else. Uh, or they're using either tax credits uh, or uh, tax credit scholarships or education savings accounts uh, to choose a private school or even some combination of private schooling, homeschooling, tutoring, etc. Uh, and in this incredible choice environment, we have actually seen uh, dramatic improvement on our NAEP scores. Uh, so uh, Arizona in 2015 was the only state uh, that had statistically significant gains in all six of the NAEP exams. So NAEP has exams in fourth grade for math and reading, uh, also in eighth grade, and then uh, for math, reading, and science, I should say, for fourth and eighth grade. Uh, the national average for public schools was to see gains in between one and four of those uh, exams. Or sorry, uh, to see uh, gains of points of about one to four points okay. in, in those in those uh, exams. Uh, in Arizona, the district schools improved by about three to six. Uh, but the charter schools in Arizona improved uh, between 15 and 22 points. And why uh, do you so think that is? Uh, I think it's because the charter sector has the most choice and competition. Uh, but we actually, uh, across the entire system, we saw incredible gains. So Arizona's charter school uh, sector is actually performing at the level of uh, schools in New England, uh, just behind like Massachusetts and New Hampshire, but, but very, very close. Uh, the difference is uh, that we're spending about half as much per pupil than they are. Uh, and we have a, uh, our charter sector serves a majority minority population, uh, and they're much lower income than they are in, uh, in the New England area. So our, our, we, our schools are doing really well. We, we hear um, that, you know, Arizona is, is last. Often what they're referring to, you know, when they say 48th is they're talking about um, uh, per pupil expenditures that are not adjusted uh, for cost of living nationally. Uh, our students are still, on average, I would say, uh, mediocre uh, relative to other states, but the fastest improving. So it's that's really important is the trajectory that you're going. And that's sort of the promise of school choice is that if parents are uh, empowered to choose the learning environment for their children, they're going to choose environments, uh, choose schools that, that are higher performing. And then over time, those schools are going to expand. They're going to open, like, for example, we see that Great Hearts takes more students. They're opening up new locations. And then others also copy the success of those schools. And so that what you're looking for is a systemic, incremental improvement over time. And in the district uh, whereas, schools as well? And the district schools as well. I mean, this is an important part of the, of the process is that as students move out of those schools, so first of all, like, look at Scottsdale. Scottsdale has a high-performing system. But you've got a lot of parents that are opting out of Scottsdale and they're sending their kids to Basis or Great Hearts. Well, first of all, that opens up seats in Scottsdale for children in Phoenix that are, that are assigned to lower performing schools to go to that district 
and it also puts pressure on the other school districts to improve their performance as well. Okay, that makes sense. So, and I know uh, some of the measurable benefits of school choice programs are backed up by several studies, and you were um, talking a little bit earlier offline about the one out of Florida and some other ones. Tell me a little bit about that. So there was a study that was just released by the uh, Urban Institute, which is a a center-left think tank uh, that was looking at the effect of Florida's tax credit scholarship program on uh, student performance, and particularly actually on student attainment. Uh, So we should note uh, Arizona was the first state to enact the tax credit scholarship program. There are now 18 states that have similar programs. Florida's is by far the largest. They serve about 100,000 students. And those students are all low-income students. Uh, the average uh, household income for a family of two is only about $25,000 a year. Uh, so these are very low-income students. About 70% of them are black or Hispanic. Uh, and they find that uh, on the students that are switching into the program from a, a public school uh, have lower scores on average when they enter the program than their uh, peers uh, of a similar, similar demographics. So they're not creaming, they're actually taking students that are on average lower performing. Um, so they're not taking the higher performing students. Although after several years in the program, those students are performing at the national average, which is to say that they are outscoring their uh, demographic peers that are low income. Uh, but what the what this analysis found was that students are significantly more likely if they participate in the scholarship program to enroll in uh, college and also to persist in college mm-hmm. and to actually attain a, a bachelor's degree. Uh, so, And they also found that uh, the longer you stay in the program, uh, in other words, the more years of participation that you're using a scholarship to go to a private school, the more likely you are to end up going to college or uh, to go uh, to, to persist and, and, and get a degree. Um, you know, sometimes uh, those who were who were um, using a scholarship for four years or more were twice as likely uh, to go to college. Wow! Uh, so that's that's great, and and they were uh, uh, about one hundred fifty percent as uh, likely to graduate uh, from college. Wow. So these, these are very strong findings, uh, and we see all across the country uh, positive effects, uh, particularly on student attainment. But uh, there have been some mixed effects on the test score side of things, a number of randomized control trials that showed positive effects. Uh, then there were a couple recently in uh, Louisiana uh, that showed um, slightly negative effects, although those negative effects disappeared uh, over time. Uh, but for the, the whole, what the research shows is that students who are participating in the program uh, tend to perform better academically and are significantly more likely to go to college and actually complete college. Yeah, well, I know not all the benefits are measurable. I'll talk a little bit about them and about the problem with only focusing on them, you know, on the uh, matrix. Yes. So there's a, there's a lot more to education than test scores. Uh, one of the reasons that I like the NAEP, um, which is the, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, the nation's report card that I discussed earlier, is that schools are not judged by the NAEP. 
so you can't, it, what they do is they take a national sample. They take a sample of schools from each state and then they compare those results. And so you can't actually prepare for the NAEP. Uh, there's no incentive for any individual school to change how they operate in order to score better on the NAEP. So there's no carrots and sticks. I think one of the problems is that um, we've, I mean, you, you're, you're talking about accountability and there's this confusion that, that test scores are like the sum total of, of accountability. Test scores measure one thing. Um, you know, they, they measure how well you're performing in math at a particular point in time, how well you're performing in language at a particular point in time. Uh, and then you can also track that over time. The, the, the problem becomes when we start attaching carrots and sticks to these. And we have, in the public school system, I think there's this metric obsession uh, where we are rewarding and punishing schools based on how they're performing on these metrics. Now, what does that do? So if a school is not performing well, and then they're labeled, this is an F school or a D school, right? Nobody wants that label. So there's a number of things they can do to improve. Uh, and not all of them are healthy. And so what a lot of schools will end up doing is, okay, well, we're going to spend more time on the measured subjects and less time on the non-measured subjects. So we're going to spend time, uh, more time on math and more time on English language arts. And we're going to do less time on foreign languages, social studies, art, music, recess, lunch, right? Um, and then for a certain part of the year, we're going to change our curriculum, right? So that the curriculum is geared toward the test. Now, we saw this in California. For example, uh, most eighth grade, uh, in most district schools in California at the eighth grade level were teaching algebra. Uh, when California adopted Common Core, algebra was tested in ninth grade, they said, okay, well, well now we're going to switch it to ninth grade. So they changed around the curriculum, not based on what they think is best for their students, but what they think is going to help them score best on the test. Right. So the metrics and, are dictating curriculum. Right. And then they'll also, in some cases, you know, spend weeks uh, doing drill and kill, just testing, uh, teaching kids how to take a test, uh, right, test taking strategies as opposed to real learning. So I think when you when you first implement uh, a testing regime, uh, the test might be measuring something important. They're telling you they're, they're telling you important things, and I think the NAEP still does that. The problem is once you attach, once you try to to make this the sum total of your accountability system, or, or even the primary part of your accountability system, uh, the people in the public school system, especially the teachers, uh, they have a very valid point here when they say that uh, this distorts the way we teach children. Uh, and in not in healthy ways, in very unhealthy ways. Uh, so I would say, uh, you know, there, you hear this argument, oh, um, the private schools are unaccountable. Yeah. The public schools are accountable. And what, right. what do they mean by that? And, oh, the private schools don't have to take the state test and the public schools do. I would say, you know, so it's not, they're not on equal footing. I would argue the, re the reverse is true. The private schools are far more accountable because they are directly accountable to parents who are empowered to choose their child's school. If your school is doing a good job, and yes, tests are a part of, of the process, tests are provide valuable information, um, then you're going to attract more students. And if you're not doing a good job, then parents have the option to leave and go somewhere else. 
Uh, that empowers parents. Because before we had these school choice programs, the district schools were so often a monopoly, especially for low-income families that, that aren't able to uh, afford to live in a school district that has a higher-performing public school uh, or to, to enroll their child in a private school. Uh, because they had a captive audience, they didn't have real accountability because they weren't accountable directly to parents. They were accountable to elected school boards, unelected uh, officials at the state capitol or even in Washington, D.C. And so what we started to do is just pile regulation after regulation after regulation on top of them like they're, uh, like they're a monopoly, like a, like a utility, um, like a public utility. And we started over time to confuse all those regulations for real accountability. I would say, no, we, we've lost sight of real accountability. We've gained it back in Arizona with the wide availability of educational choice options. And so the time has come to actually start scaling back on all of the top-down regulations on the district schools. And then, yes, let them uh, compete on uh, even ground with the charters and the privates and uh, all, the, all the other options yet to be imagined. Yeah, you talk about uh, the accountability, and yeah, that's one of the biggest complaints is that, you know, um, they say that these tax dollars are going to school choice programs, and there's no accountability, and, and that's not fair. And uh, I, one of the main points that is never talked about is the importance of not holding private schools or, or any other school choice program to the exact same standards as the uh, public schools. And it's, um, you know, obviously what you had said about the parents will be the ones that are going to hold them accountable. They're the ones paying the money. They're the ones who actually took the initiative to go after this and look for another option outside of public school. But but also if you, um, if you hold them to the exact same standards, then they start to look a lot like the public schools. And then they're, you know, using the carrot and the stick that you were explaining earlier. That's right. So what we, what we don't want is a system that says, you know, well, we're going to have every school is going to be McDonald's, but you can choose from the best McDonald's out there, right? And we'll give you all these metrics that you can decide which school is the best McDonald's. But if you're looking for Taco Bell, uh, let alone uh, vegan options or kosher options, you know, you're out of luck. Um, you know, I, th I think that's, that's not the system that we want to go in. Uh, that might make sense if we lived in a world in which there was one best way to teach a child and we knew what it was and we knew exactly how to design a system that would produce that. But I don't think any of those assumptions actually attain. Um, different children learn better in different environments. There's no one right way to teach. And the truth is different people have different values. So, you know, yes, you know, everybody, uh, you know, wants, uh, you know, some level of um, math and, and reading. Obviously, those are those are essential. Um, but you know, some parents want to focus a little bit more on civics. Uh, for others, religious instruction is of supreme importance. Uh, others want their child to have a real a deep appreciation of the arts and uh, you know drama and music. Um, and different children have uh, different likes and dislikes. Uh, I think it's great. Uh, you know, there are some families that have one child in a, in a, who's thriving in a local district school. Another child is at a charter school that focuses on drama. Another one is, is going to a magnet school that focuses on STEM, uh, you know, science, technology, uh, engineering, and math. 
And I think that's great. Uh, we, we should have multiple options and parents should be able to choose from among them. And if we were to judge all of these schools by exactly the same metrics, again, you're going to dilute the value of choice by um, creating powerful incentives for these schools to conform to a system that is really just arbitrarily chosen, not, not, the, not the system that's designed to meet uh, particular goals that, that they want, but designed only, you know, they, they would be, it would be inverting those priorities and they would be uh, designing their system to do well on the test as opposed to achieve some educational objective. Now we could talk about this for a long time, I'm sure, uh, but we're slowly running out of time. I just wanted to give you an opportunity to say anything else that you think is important that um, you know people listening would be interested in hearing. Oh, well, I'll give a pitch for uh, the EdChoice website, edchoice.org. Uh, you can find out lots of information uh, about uh, school choice programs in your states and how they compare to school choice programs across the country. Uh, we also, you know, we, we gather tons of information about these programs, how many students are participating, uh, what the uh, value of the scholarships are, what regulations are imposed on the programs. Uh, we also have information about all of the different research that has been conducted by uh, different universities and think tanks uh, on school choice. Um, lots of information on the website. Uh, but the most important thing is as, uh, as parents, you should find out about these programs so that you know what is available when you're trying to educate your children. There are many, many different options out there, and uh, you want to arm yourself with the best knowledge, uh, the, the, the best information available for you to choose wisely for your kid's future. Great. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us today, Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice. Uh, thanks for correcting some of the misinformation out there and shining some light on frequently overlooked benefits of school choice programs. I'm sure we'll be talking again with you soon as these issues continue to be battled out at the state legislature. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. 